Hi, it's Dominic Preziosi, and you're listening to the Commonwealth Podcast. Today, Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek talks with Marsha Chatlin. She's a professor of history at Georgetown and was a member of Georgetown's Slavery, Memory, and Reconciliation Working Group. She and Griffin discuss her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, as well as racism in America and in the Catholic Church. You're listening to the Commonwealth Podcast. Hello, Griffin. It's good to be back with you. Hey, Dominic. So I'm looking forward to this episode. You spoke with Marsha Chatlin back in December before the insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol. But it happens that your discussion actually has quite a lot of resonance at this moment. That's right. Now racism and white supremacy, of course, are at the front of everybody's minds. But it's important to remember how we got here. And that's exactly where Marsha Chatlin's book is so important. She writes about the civil rights era during the 1960s, when it seemed like the business community was going to be able to deliver greater socioeconomic justice for African Americans. And so the notion that McDonald's could help Black franchise owners contribute to their community was something that the Black community gravitated towards. But it's important to remember that it didn't work. That is, private companies aren't capable of delivering public goods like healthcare, economic welfare, and greater socioeconomic justice. Marsha also makes an important point that it's Catholic social teaching that can remind us that we can be more than just consumers. That is, we can be, as Pope Francis says, people who care for each other. But she also asks an important question. She herself has a Catholic formation, and so she wonders, why is it the case that in U.S. church we're successful at organizing against things like the death penalty, abortion, or immigration restrictions, but we can't seem to confront white supremacy? She says, and I agree, that we're complicit. That is, we can't give up the advantages that white supremacy confers. So that's a lingering question that that she left me with and that I think she'll leave listeners with. Okay, that's great. So why don't we take a listen, Griffin? Thank you. I'm Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, and I study African-American life and culture. So Marcia, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's so exciting to have this conversation. What was the reaction when you told friends or colleagues that you were planning to write a book about McDonald's? I think when people think about books about McDonald's, they usually think of it in one or two ways. Books that either celebrate the innovation embedded within the industry, so the stories of the McDonald's brothers, as well as Ray Kroc and franchising, or they think of it as these takedown books of the fast food industry, like Fast Food Nation or the documentary Supersize Me. And Often people think when you're writing about race and fast food that you're mostly talking about racial disparities in consumption as well as disparate health impacts. But I wanted to do something a little differently. I wanted to think about the possibility of understanding the complexity of food and race from a historical perspective. How did we get here exactly and how did fast food become such a marker of all of the different social ills that concern us today? In a lot of conversations about race and health, there's often a tone that is communicated that people are bad or wrong because they eat fast food. People are bad or wrong because they feed fast food to their children. And I wanted to write something that helped us understand these relationships that are so deeply affective in consumerism, in a sense of belonging. And what does it mean for African-Americans who have been shut out of this 
very strong presence in the US, a very strong kind of driver of a capitalist society. Like when you are shut out of marketplaces and then markets open to you, how does that create really complicated relationships? And so I wanted us to think about those roots of how a business like McDonald's becomes a presence in African-American communities. And it all starts with the civil rights struggle. And in 1968, after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, the nation witnessed the kind of upheaval that many of us witnessed in 2020. And the question of how do we address racial inequality and who should be the lead in that is a pervasive set of challenges. And in 1968, it seemed like fast food franchising could be one of these vehicles for African-American economic redevelopment in communities that had been left behind. And I think from our 2020 perspective, we can be very judgmental and say, why did anyone think that would work? But from the stance of 1968, it seemed like an idea worth investing in. And so when McDonald's decided to start recruiting African-Americans to franchise McDonald's in mostly Black communities, people saw it as an extension of trying to write the unfinished business of civil rights. And I always think that these approaches to racial justice are really fascinating. So one of the ideas that took root in the late 60s and early 70s that you describe is this notion of Black capitalism. Could you tell us a bit about what Black capitalism means? What are some of its promises and contradictions? Yeah, so the idea of Black capitalism has very long roots in history. And it's this idea that in order for African Americans to either secure their citizenship rights and their ability to enjoy the promises of a democracy, that economic development and economic building can be a route to that. And in the 19th century and the early 20th century, the spirit of Black capitalism was animated by the fact that Black business owners were in many ways the unelected officials of Black America. So if a family owned a funeral parlor, they're likely to have the power to maybe negotiate for a school for Black children or more resources from the all-white government. So it was this idea that some economic self-sufficiency would open other doors. Increasingly, Black capitalism also became a strategy to make up for the failures of a Jim Crow or a racially segregated state. So you raise your own money for the resources you need because you're being left behind. So what would somebody like Martin Luther King have said about the idea of Black capitalism? He would have been so grumpy about the way that it was articulated after 1968. The day before he was assassinated, on April 3rd, 1968, in Memphis, he lays out what he believes is the power of kind of economic building. And what he's talking about isn't a vision of Black capitalism where a few people get very wealthy and there's a hope that it trickles down into community. He's talking about economic boycott as a symbol of solidarity with working people and people who are struggling. He was in Memphis to support a sanitation worker strike. And he tells the audience, like, the sanitation workers have been the ones who've been struggling and suffering. We all have to suffer. And we can't purchase from companies that are not standing in solidarity with workers. And we should use as Black people our economic strength, our collective strength to put deposits in Black banks and invest with Black insurance companies. But 
he wasn't saying like someone should make a gazillion dollars and hopefully they'll donate it to causes. He's talking about a real economic upheaval. And that last year of his life was so important as he started to talk about the, the three evils, militarism and his stance against the Vietnam War, racism and his continued struggle against white supremacy and capitalism, his belief that the investment in capitalism was starving people. And to think about the architect of the Poor People's Campaign, of someone who wanted to create a march on Washington and occupy federal buildings until there was some type of vision of fulfilling the goals of the war on poverty, instituting universal basic income, for that person and his legacy to then be co-opted by the fast food industry to say the opportunity to franchising is brought to us by the dream of Martin Luther King is like really unsettling, but it was very much front and center in this effort to bring fast food franchises to black neighborhoods. Can you talk a little bit about the franchisees themselves, the different forces that they had to negotiate? Yeah, the early group of black franchisees were all men and they were people who were very much at the intersection of this moment in the late 1960s, where they had experienced the discrimination and the hardships of the Jim Crow era. And they were also emerging as Black professionals in the kind of uh, moment in which affirmative action, federal funding for Black-owned business, and a sensibility of some institutions that had kept their doors closed, were starting to open a little bit. And so they really saw themselves as an extension of King's dream and legacy. They saw themselves as pillars of the community, and they very much took up that type of position that Black business people had in communities for a very long time. With that being said, I think that they really do represent the poignancy of how race operates in America, because a lot of them were very successful, not all. But even within a system that allowed them to become wealthy, they experienced racism and discrimination because they were Black. And so some of the issues that they dealt with is that they sometimes inherited restaurants that were abandoned by white franchise owners who no longer wanted to do business in predominantly Black communities. Sometimes they would find themselves unable to get the support from McDonald's corporate that their white counterparts would get. The recent lawsuit, I think it was 51 Black franchise owners are suing McDonald's. And some of the arguments they're making are the arguments that were made in the late 70s and 1980s. And so we see a kind of cyclical nature of these kind of corporate responses to the questions of racial justice. And that kind of permanence in the questions that arise is is something that is always really fascinating to me and always makes me wonder if people are reading enough history before they come up with their ideas. You talk a lot about constrained decisions. Would you mind talking a bit more about that? How different Black actors respond to some of these constraints that are becoming increasingly clear that there's a kind of upper limit to what they can achieve within the McDonald's structure. Yeah, I grappled with this because as someone who was very much, I guess they call us on Twitter, social justice warrior Catholics, who, um, you know, who grew up in the culture of thinking about the poor, the most marginalized, like how do we stand in solidarity with those who are suffering? I had a very hard time taking up the plight of Black millionaires who should be Black multimillionaires, right? 
In the 80s and the 90s, there was a kind of engagement with corporations around corporate responsibility. And it's very much the signature activism of people like Jesse Jackson, who at that point was at Operation Push, and the Reverend Al Sharpton in the National Action Network, where they would call for these boycotts of businesses, of corporations. And the terms of the negotiation, I believe, were often done in ways that privileged white collar workers and black entrepreneurs at the expense of black workers. And so when there were accusations that African-Americans were limited in franchising to black neighborhoods that had disparities in the cost of running these businesses and were constrained in the opportunities, whether it was McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken or Burger King, a lot of these actors negotiated for more fast food franchises, right, to be black owned. And this contributed to the hypersaturation of these businesses in black communities, but they also privilege black advertising firms and accountants and attorneys. And I often think about if that political will to fight discrimination was also expended on workers, maybe we would be in a different landscape. Support for Commonweal comes from Simon & Schuster, publishers of Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future by Pope Francis. In his most personal and inspiring writing yet, Pope Francis discusses how we can emerge from the COVID crisis stronger and more unified than ever. To come out of this crisis better, we have to see clearly, choose well, and act right. Let's talk about how Let Us Dare to Dream, writes Pope Francis in Let Us Dream, before providing a blueprint for a more equitable society, one ready to confront income inequality, climate change, and other major issues facing the world with love, compassion, and faith. Let Us Dream by Pope Francis is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. One of the more, I guess you could call it, disturbing things that emerges from the book is that for many Black communities in the 70s and 80s, McDonald's almost came to supplant the state. I'm wondering, could you say a bit more about what this means for us now? How McDonald's, in some sense, came to stand in for things that the federal government or state governments or local governments ought to have been providing, different kinds of public goods. Yes, this is why I also wrote this book. I am very concerned about the ways that the neoliberal turn didn't simply give power to corporations. The neoliberal turn allowed us to step into a world where we believed that we didn't have power as people, that our only power came in terms of our consumer potential rather than our potential as people who can care for each other. I have this joke that I always tell about when Pope Francis came to visit D.C. in, I think it was like 2015, and he went to the White House to see President Obama. And in his remarks, he talked about Martin Luther King and the March on Washington, but he didn't quote the part of the speech that like most people know, I have a dream speech. He actually quoted the part where Martin Luther King talks about how essentially Black America has been given a bad check that's been stamped insufficient 
sufficient funds. And I was like, good for you, Pope Francis. I think Catholic social teaching provides us everything that we need to know about being vigilant against the forces of a corporatized and insufficient response to the poor. One of the things that I find so disheartening is the ways that I view Catholics in the U.S. have been able to really organize and show up in some very distinct social movements and has yet to really articulate itself in terms of racial justice. What I have witnessed in a decade working at a Jesuit university, having gone to Catholic school all my life until college and graduate school, and being part of conversations around U.S. Catholics and the history of slaveholding, as well as seeing the ways that American Catholics have been able to articulate their stance around immigration, support for DREAMers and DACA, to see the witness that American Catholics have done around the death penalty, that the capacity is there to link Catholic social teaching to really dynamic and clear work. And it's there's not even a glimmer of that in terms of thinking about Black lives and the questions of Black Lives Matter and the question of police brutality and the ways that, you know, over the summer, in the same ways that the corporatized response to our George Floyd summer was to talk about supporting Black businesses and Black suppliers. And the reason why I, I just take such umbrage with that approach. So there are about somewhere between two and two and a half million Black-owned businesses in the United States. More than 95% of them involve one person, the owner, being employed by that business. They do not create massive amounts of jobs. Black-owned businesses are an important member of the community. Black-owned businesses tend to be incredible philanthropic vehicles for Black communities. Black-owned businesses can sometimes, in many ways, serve as a role model in communities. With that being said, investing in Black-owned businesses as a branch of the call for racial and economic justice is not a viable, sustainable, or reasonable solution. But what happens is that starts to stand in as justice, and it doesn't interrogate that Black-owned businesses matter to the extent that we have hyper-segregated and hyper-starved communities. And so all of this is to say, in the same ways that the 1968 playbook was being deployed in 2020 to answer all of these questions, I feel like in a lot of Catholic communities that wanted to have conversations about racial justice, there is a type of a stance of racial innocence as if Catholic churches were the property in which they were built, where Catholic schools were built, the ways that Catholic schools played a role on both sides of the issue of school integration. All of that history gets erased and everyone gathers together in this stance as if there is no deep kind of history to return to or to refer to, to think about what are different ways that Catholic communities can enter this conversation. Of course, racial justice is now at the center of the country's attention. I'm wondering, what possibilities do you see for racial justice, for example, with the incoming Biden administration? I guess all I can say is this. The massive amount of suffering that we have experienced because of COVID could perhaps open up the terrain for 
racial justice initiatives that are just framed as economic justice initiatives because so many people can be helped by that. I don't know if Joe Biden can do anything for racial justice, but this is what I do know he can do. If he sat down and crafted a hundred days of economic justice, he can be able to start to address some of the impacts of racial discrimination long-term and couch it in a way that the kind of backlash to big state solutions will be a little deracinated because so many people are suffering. And so if he says, all right, folks, we're going to do universal health care, Medicare for all, free college debt forgiveness, and we're going to create these structures, the outcry against these types of solutions are often based in a kind of racially discriminatory way, because the reason why people started to hate the big state was because during this period of time that I write about, African-Americans could start to actually participate in the very programs they had been shut out of. Massive Welfare programs were fine in the 30s and 40s, as long as Black people couldn't access them. But after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and a little bit more diligence around these issues, big social programs became a problem. But now that we are in this kind of COVID crisis, I think that there can be an introduction of these solutions that while it may raise the hackles of small government people, These are things that people absolutely need, and these are actually the steps towards some type of repair that the government can do. So all of this is to say that if we're going to do something very real and clear, we have to put it back in the places that actually have the capacity and the power to do it. And that, I believe, is the state, because we actually have a mechanism of collecting revenues for redistribution. We're just not collecting enough. And so I actually... I'm not interested in a world in which Black franchise owners gather together and help fund historically Black colleges and universities. I don't want to depend on the largesse or the profits or the benevolence of business leaders or corporations. I don't want Bill Gates to be generous, and I don't care if Jeff Bezos is generous. I want them to live in a society in which they have a certain set of responsibilities collected in the form of taxes to ensure that the people who work for them and the people who allow their enterprises to grow are able to live on the wages that they offer. And the only way we can do that is through regulation and through proper taxation. To live in a capitalist society is to have endless amounts of choices of the things that you want and desire. And I would prefer to have fewer consumer choices if it meant that people didn't have to worry about being evicted. I would actually prefer to make less choices in what kind of bread I had if it meant that someone wouldn't die because they couldn't get medical care. And so I think that we have celebrated capitalism and we have made it seem as if capitalism means freedom rather than capitalism means that we are yoked into the degradation of our neighbor. And I think that's what it requires. I'm wondering, is there something now that gives you hope, whether it's anti-capitalist movements, whether it's Catholic social teaching, how do we begin to decouple ourselves 
from these kind of affective bonds that we have with capitalism? I think anti-capitalism is an act of faith that we really need to explore within our communities. And I take this back to my experience of being on Georgetown's working group on slavery, memory, and reconciliation. And there was a willingness on the part of almost everyone that I engaged with about the topic to be serious and reflective about Catholic slaveholding and its impacts and racial justice. And sometimes I would say, what if we are called to just stop and liquidate all the assets that the church has and give it away with all our hearts and walk away on faith that act of relinquishing is an act of justice that we need to do. And I think about this in terms of the question of reparations. And 99% of the time people say, okay, that's too much. (laughs) And I said, but is it? Is it? The idea that there are debts that are historical, that are generationally relevant. They're debts that we may never repay in our lifetime, but we still move towards that repayment. Like, what an incredible act of faith if the church said, we are going to reduce ourselves to nothing because we have a great faith that to do this, to extinguish ourselves in this way, will provide us kind of a greater spiritual question. And the reason why I put it in, and maybe this is in extreme terms, is if we can't fathom having that kind of faith in action, then what the hell are we doing? The same impulses of capitalism, they infect us all. No one's immune from it, no matter how faithful we like to imagine ourselves. But I think a lot about the story of, you know, Jesus in the, the desert, Jesus' temptation of the desert. And Jesus is exhausted and so over it. And the devil says, listen, if you just follow me, these are the things that you can have. And it's clear. And all you have to do is just agree to bow down before me and look at all of these things that you can have. And I think that in the context that we live in the United States, that every white American is given this kind of opportunity. If you just bow down before the tenets of white supremacy, I will give you everything that you need to be safe. I will give you the benefit of the doubt. I will give you the best schools. I will give you the best health outcomes. I will give you the best opportunity for economic security. I will give you the things that you believe you need to be safe. You just have to submit to me. And while most people are not going to join the Proud Boys or these other assemblages of terrorist white supremacist groups, I think that for white Americans, At some point in your consciousness, that if you follow at least one, if not some of the tenets of white supremacy, there will be something given back to you. And I think that temptation is so clear and pronounced in the world we live in, that we are held back by the uncertainty that if we were to say no to it, then what do we have? So much about racism is social and as affective as the things I talk about in my book. And to remove yourself from the bonds that racism allows you to have, I think that would be really hard. I think that there is a kind of removal from whiteness that can be very painful. And I think that we have to acknowledge that as something real and of substance if we're ever going to destroy it. And I think that for a lot of Catholic communities that I have engaged with, that bargain is made very clear in where your church is located 
the prestige of your schools, the outcomes of your families, the ability to reproduce the same social conditions like generation after generation. That's a very real thing. And so I, I think that to talk about that and to acknowledge that is so existentially painful and so spiritually and like morally challenging that what we get in its place is a lot of God loves everyone. Jesus loved all people. Racism is a sin. It's none of these things are helpful, right? Like none of these things are fundamentally helpful. And so I think that until we have the kind of visionary clarity and the kind of like figure who will say it and will walk away. I think Pope Francis is doing some really good stuff. I would love to see him in a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on Twitter. But short of that, I think the interrogation of capitalism, the interrogation of power, the interrogation of the death penalty, all of these things gets us closer. But I think that the ways that white supremacy can actually effectively form community. It's just such a scary proposition that I think this is one of the like final pillars that has to come down. Marsha Chatland, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Marsha Chatland's book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, is about to be reissued in paperback. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek, and the Commonwealth staff, in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.